0: Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to First Peter. First Peter, chapter four. This morning, we'll start there, and we're looking at the first f- six verses of First Peter, chapter four. Let me read those. Uh, from the word of God it says therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, but they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living of the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we do look at the word of God, prescribed word of God that we can actually see, read, hear, and think about, I pray, Lord, we would take this passage of Scripture and, and begin to just to flesh out the things that Peter is talking about here for our daily lives. Because we know, Lord, it gives us the purpose of suffering as a citizen, a Christian citizen still in this world, but part of another kingdom. So I pray you enable us, Lord, to understand these truths so we can can capture our heart and mind and that we can actually do them. In Christ's name, amen. So we've come to this last section of First Peter in the sense of, remember the first section was on salvation, the second section, section was on submission, and this last section uh, all the way to the end of the book is really on suffering. Uh, that's what, the, what Peter is now beginning to teach us about, that Part of the Christian life is going to have an element of suffering in it. So on this Lord's Day, we'll see the purpose of suffering as a citizen, at least the first part of it, is to be really equipped with the mind of Christ so that we, as believers, will realize that our struggle and battle will be for the cause of righteousness. Peter's main purpose was encouragement and exhortation for Christians under fiery trials. We see in verse number 12 of chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So sometimes trials are going to uh, come into our life that do seem strange that do seem like why are they there Uh, but they're there and they're there for a specific reason of course when we get there it's going to be for part of it for our testing but it's also to see if we put into practice the principles that we have been learning along the way in the word of God so Peter wants to actually exhort and encourage Christians under trials and prod them to continue to have courage in the faith, to continue to remain pure towards the world, and to continue to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who has also suffered, so that they could have, and so we can have, actually, eternal salvation. So Peter's soul rested on a firm foundation. He wanted his fellow believers to have the same firm faith But he knew that it would be accompanied by times of testing and suffering. And his mighty testimony fortified and informed, actually, his fellow Christians against the pressure and storms of life. His main exhortation was to endure in the light of the transitory nature of suffering in contrast with the eternal nature of salvation. So God called you uh, to belong to Jesus Christ, to share his eternal glory. Eternal marked the contrast between present, present suffering, which is only temporary, and I can even say that life is only temporary, at least on this earth, against God's vindication, which will last for all eternity, for all time. The hope of all Christians stands ultimately in his strength and his faithfulness, not necessarily our hold on him, but his hold on us. Christians are now called with the reminder, actually with the remainder of their life, to live for the Lord. So from this day forward, the admonition is to live for the Lord, whatever the past was. Leave the past behind. So the purpose of suffering as a Christian is to live for the Lord with the same mind and character that the Lord lived. Those characteristics that we can actually live in our life that the Lord lived and the Spirit of God is now working in us. And to do that, Scripture is going to really point us the four things that we do and know. These are four things that we do and know. What's the the first thing that we know? Well, it's that of the purpose of suffering as a citizen is that we are to know that we are to imitate the purpose of Christ in suffering. Look at verse number 1 of of 1st Peter chapter 4. It says therefore, all right? Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So here we are now looking at facing suffering with armor on. Arm yourselves, it says in verse number 1, brings to mind the image of a military context. The word arm is used in other passages, and in each one, it, we get the sense that the believer is to be equipping themselves for a struggle or for a battle. It is a term appropriate, actually, for those living in a hostile society or those living under some kind of suffering or persecution or ridicule. Uh, it's appropriate that we would think that, listen, if we're going to go into battle, don't go without your armor on. Go with your armor on, right? Why? So it will give you a, a, a greater uh, s- foundation to actually survive the trial or survive the battle because you are—you can deflect things with your armor. All right. So similar passages of Scripture like in... Uh, Romans chapter 13 verse number 12 where it says the night is almost gone the day is near therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and notice put on the armor of light so these are things that we are to do that these are things that the spirit of God doesn't do for us we are to do them once we learn the principles that we've learned in chapter 1 2 and 3 that now we are to put on the armor and be ready for any conflict that may come our way. And then, of course, that passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So behind some of our suffering is going to be the devil who wants to discourage you uh, in the faith and wants to cause you to quit to take your armor off and just to go the old way. i'm going to go back to my old life and he tempts you to do that because sometimes things in your old life may look at least presently when you're going through suffering like better than what you're going through now as a believer all right but nonetheless again ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says therefore take up the full armor of god so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So the point or the end result of a person putting on their armor is to be able to stand firm in anything that they're going through. Of course, behind all that, God giving all the ability for you to stand firm. Why? Because... 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So in other words, the battle is going to be much going on in your mind. Satan wants to win over your mind when you, when you become a believer and, and deceive you as to what the truth is. God wants you to put the armor of on the armor of God, so you are firm in what you believe in your mind, so he cannot deceive you, so that in that you stand strong. In fact, in our text, the weapon that we are to arm ourselves with is a way of thinking. It's a principle of thought and attitude. Notice again in verse number one, it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Actually, that word right there in the Greek is really from a noun that means mind or nous, mind. That the mental conception that follows a consideration and a deliberation on something, in other words, a way of thinking. Think the way Christ thought. In other words, that, so that's what we're able to do. It's a, current for, a concern here for the cognitive dimension that leads to behavior. I think of something which leads to behavior. In this case, it's putting on my armor, and my armor is that of a way of thinking that gives me victory over any deception that may come my way during times, especially during times of trouble, that I'm armed in my mind. So we are still really considering the work of Christ in suffering once for our sin that we covered last week, and the result was that sin was done away with by Christ. It was finished. In other words, Jesus Christ was finished with it, as we saw in First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-three, where it says, "And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats." but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross for what reason? So we might die to sin. And then what? To live to righteousness. So there's no vacuum left from for a believer. We don't just die to sin and put our sin down. Don't We don't do the next thing. No, we put our sin down, and then we pick up the righteousness and learn how to live righteously. And so the only way that's going to happen is if we're armed in our mind. No one can convince you that this is not the right thing to do found in the Word of God. And so although Jesus did no sin, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, and the burden of our sin was on him. He carried it up to Calvary, but there it ended. His death finished his involvement with our sin. Now, in the passage of Scripture that we read here in verse number 1, notice the next thing that Peter brings up in this passage, and it's this, that we are to face suffering victoriously. Why? Well, notice in the last part of verse number 1, it says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that means this. The point being here that union with Christ means death to sin. The Apostle Peter actually applies this principle to us that if we are in Christ and Christ's spirit is in us then what goes with that is something very real that we actually die to our sin. Similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 onwards where he says, Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members, the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say, But present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have master over you, be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Again, here it is that the Apostle Peter is saying, arm yourself with the same principle of thought that union with Christ in his suffering means for me and for you death to my sin. Several commentaries pointed out that resolve is not to suffer, but rather to have the same attitude and response to suffering that Christ did. Also, to have the same attitude that Christ had as to what his suffering accomplished for his children. That is, the relationship we once had with our sin has completely changed. So in other words, when somebody becomes a believer, they really cannot go on in the old sinful patterns and ways in their life if they're really a believer, right? That has to end. Or that means if it doesn't end and, it, and they just go on to live with no issues or problems, then they're probably not a believer because the result of Christ's dead produced in me and you a desire not to want to continue on in sin. Right? So we have this change in our mind as to how we actually look at and deal with our own sin. Accordingly, that means that Christians do not regard sin as a matter of indifference. That is, to think that to fall into sin is no serious matter. It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, it's a huge deal. In fact, it's a bigger deal as a believer to fall into sin, and to live with a certain pattern of sin than it is as an unbeliever. It's a big deal to God. Because, see, if you're going to be encouraged in your faith to, as to whether you are a believer and you're growing in Christ, where are you going to see it the most? You're going to see it that the old sins are no there, long, longer there anymore. And not only are they, they, are you're fighting with them to put them to death, but the desire to do them is waning. I don't even want to do it anymore. All right? Eventually, it just goes. Right? It doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted with that sin again. You will be, because Satan's slick. He knows how to tempt you. He knows how to get to you uh, as far as a way of uh, tempting, because he wants to tempt you to sin. So the genuine Christian looks at sin, all sin. All right? There's no such thing as a pink sin, a green sin, a white sin, a little sin. No. No. Yeah, some sins are more serious than others, but sin is rebellion in your heart against God. Right? Whether it's a we consider it's a more serious one or not as serious as others, all sin to a believer is a serious matter. See, they know that they're not sinless. They know that, right? Because we're still we still have remaining corruption. We know that We are not, in fact, free from the temptation to sin and sin itself, and we know the great price that our Lord, Jesus Christ, suffered in our place so that we can be forgiven and made righteous before the Father. We know those things. See, those are the things that we're armed with in our mind, in our thinking, and so the Christian... should live in a manner in which they manifest an opposition, a growing opposition to their own sin. It's not just, well, that person needs to change what they're doing. No, I need to change. I need to put my sin down, and I have all the power by the Spirit of God to do that. So, see, a Christian is growing in their opposition to sin, and our attitudes become our weapon. All right? How I view sin is the way God views it. How I view sin is I know that my sin nailed Jesus to the cross too. So that means sin to God becomes a very serious matter. In fact, if someone is not forgiven of their sin, they are cast, they are actually heading for a lost eternity, which is a very sad thing to think about. So a Christian really grows to hate sin. Even though he commits a sin, he does not want to sin to reign over him anymore, so turns from it in repentance and in the strength God gives to put off the dirty garments and, of, of their own sin and, and then dons the garments of righteousness. That's what they do. So that's the practice of a believer. However, the Apostle Peter seems to focus his attention in our text, at least this morning, not on necessarily the principle of sin, but the concrete acts of sin. In other another words, that a believer should know what sin is. It shouldn't be something that is so it shouldn't be something for a Christian that you cannot define, right? You and I should know before anybody else what sin is and the very sins that we commit in our own minds. That's where sin needs to be put to death, right here in our thoughts. So when we understand this, that means for the remainder of our earthly life, we we are going to want to break with our sin. That's going to be part of the battle. That's part of the armor, putting on the armor. Because if you notice again in our text, it says in verse 1, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So that means that our union with Christ is going to produce this in us. So that means, secondly, he brings this up before you, that breaking with your sins is Essential for a believer, it is not a give or take thing. It's not what you decide. It's what happens when you become a believer, and so that includes, firstly, that living. You're living by a new standard of conduct as a believer, a new a new standard. And notice what it says in First Peter chapter four, verse two. It says, "So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh." Now, I want to stop right there for a minute. Because there's a certain liberty that God gives us in our salvation that ushers in a new time of life for us. You know, old things pass away, behold, old things become new, right? So a a time of life in which we have a choice to make a new investment. We have a choice to make a new investment. Now, in making that choice, there's always two things going on. In other words, there's two ways to live life. What's the first way? Well, the first way to live life is this way, that your life is determined by the, the will of human desire. Now look at verse number 2, again of 1 Peter chapter 4, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men. Now what does that mean? That means that that's the way we lived our life before we became believers. That's how God sees us, and that, this, this is how God defines what happened. Being dead to sin does not mean that we are perfect, nor does it mean that we are without sin or that we shall never sin again. What it means is that we no longer belong to the realm of sin, wherein we are dominated by sin and under its power and governed in its various ways and the, the different ways of lusts and desires that sin conjures up. So living in the lust of men means we live in a power domain where everyone was wholly within its grip. That means the this sinful sphere, this sinful domain, we were in the grip of sin, we, are, we were absolutely subject to that sin or what sin we were committing at that particular point in our life. And it, we were helpless to gain any kind of escape or release from that particular sin or sins that we were committed. So our great God has moved his children from the spiritual graveyard where Satan rules where fleshly desires and cravings dominate and enslave and where the world system constantly changes with confusing messages. He's moved us from there to a heavenly realm in the sense where our good and merciful and loving God rules with all power and authority now and forever. In other words, being a Christian is not to have a nice, comfortable feeling inside, but to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, that is to enter into the realm where God rules. So that's the difference. Before God did not rule in my life, no matter how religious I tried to be, what ruled in my life? Sin ruled in my life. Sin was my master. Sin is what led me this way or that way? Whatever wind, whatever was going on in my life, that's where I was led. Or helps my 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 friends, quote unquote friends, led me, help me, be led in a certain way to a certain place to do a certain thing. Right? That that's what all of us were there uh, to a certain extent. So to be a Christian means to be taken out of the horrible darkness, out of the life of sin and shame and evil, and to begin a, to live a new life with a new heart, with a new way of thinking. Because that's what the Spirit of God is doing. It's transforming our minds so we know what the good will of God is. So we're no longer, we, we can no longer claim ignorance when it comes to our own sin. No longer We are no longer children of of The ignorant of of what God is actually doing. We are no longer to be led around by the changing wind of human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. No, we are to live the rest of our time on earth according to a specific standard of conduct to which the Christian conforms to. They learned what it is. And what is that? Well, it brings me to the second way to live, and these are the only two ways to live right here. Either you live by one or the other. Now, a Christian can live by both. All right? They can, they can say, well, I'm just going to go along with my own desires and my own passions. And, uh, but what happens is that when we start learning the Word of God and the Word of God begins to transform our mind, then we start to arm ourselves with this. that we begin to determine purpose that i'm going to live by the will of god see see so this desire overtakes my desire for sin it helps me to recognize where i do sin so i don't please my lord displease my lord i want to please my lord and so the divine will must control the believer's life rather than mere human impulse That must be the case. For the Christian, the rest of his life or her life is no longer to be shaped by desires of sin, but by the will of God. Each one of us lived a lifestyle that just swept us along with the crowd. The Lord has freed us from the old wretched life to a new life. Living life from now on for what God desires, not for the old, sinful, selfish, self-centered desires that we were so common to. In fact, we didn't even know we were actually being led that way. Well, you don't really learn that until you become a believer. If you, you start understanding what the scriptures, is, wow, that's really the way I was, you know? And um, And so you went that way. So when you come to Jesus Christ, there is a transformation that starts and continues to take place until the day we drop off these filthy coats of remaining humanness. So this means that the unsaved person has only one capacity. The unsaved person has only one course of action, to serve sin and self while leaving God out of his life. On the other hand, the believer, the saved person, has an option. And what's the option right here? These two. Here's your options. And do we take those options? We do. But what happens is that when we start taking the first option too much, if you're a really believer, you're going to be heavily convicted by the Spirit of God, and that's what ought to happen. Until the Spirit of God shows you, you know what? You're not going one more step until you take care of that sin. Your life is on hold until that sin is dealt with. And the Spirit of God begins to magnify in your own life and heart that this has to be put off before you can put on righteousness and then start moving forward again. So sometimes a believer, because they have an option, like Adam and Eve had an option, we now as believers have an option. But the second way is is going to be the way that begins to dominate as we grow in Christ, as we grow in our knowledge and wisdom of the Word of God. And why? Because we want to serve God. We want to serve God as long as we're in these human bodies. But I know this, and you know this, that we will do it in struggle. We will do it in the struggle of the flesh which desires to leave God out. And, of course, the flesh always wants to leave God out and live according to the former lust and passion. So, again, in our mind, we have to make a decision. All right? Now, here are some of the decisions that we have to make. We have to consider ourselves or yourselves. Consider yourself today delivered from this present evil world. Galatians one four says, "When who who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father." A second thing you need to consider about yourself as a believer is that you are now an overcomer, an overcomer in this present world. The Gospel of First uh, John, the First John said. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then, as Peter has been also telling us, listen, we're not home. We're heading to home. We're passing through on our way home. We're travelers. We're citizens of another kingdom. He already told us that. And we have to consider that too. That we we live in a very transitory mode heading to an eternal place, and God has a job for us to do. And while we head that place, we are to deal with our sin. We are to make sure that we are putting that sin to death. The next thing, we are to consider ourselves to be as no longer being a friend of the world. Remember what it says in James. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I don't want to be the friend of the world anymore. The world is not the one who's dictating what I do in my life anymore, how I think or what I purpose to do in my life or your life anymore. That's over. That's done. I'm considering in my mind that I'm different now as a believer. And then, of course, another thing that we can consider is that I don't, I don't no longer want to love the world. Well, what does it say in 1 John 2.15? Do not love the world, right? Nor the things in the world If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if I continue to love those things the world says to love, and believe me, there's a lot of things the world says to love and to be like this, do this, dress this way, talk this way, act this way, listen to that music, go to that place, meet that person. The world's telling you all kinds of things But you have to determine because now you can actually think as a believer in a different way because your mind is being transformed to say, No, I don't have to do those things anymore. I don't need those things to live my life anymore. I am not loving the world. I'm not a friend of the world. I am an overcomer in this present world. And I have been delivered, all right, from this present evil world and now put into the kingdom of light. I am different. And so, according to these particular passages that we have to consider that in our mind, and I I mean by that is that we have to think about these things, who we are and how different we are. Now, according to the next thing in our text right there in 1 John, it kind of sends this to us. We've spent far too much time, yes, more than enough time on our old desires and passions, or another way to say it, our old pagan desires and passions. Now look what it says in verse number three, of First Peter chapter four. It says this: Living, well, it says for the time already, the, for the time already past is sufficient for you to car- to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. All right, that's the first thing. That means. Breaking what your sin is definitely essential, and then the second thing would be living the past life, it's time, it's over. See, there's going to have to be a decision that a believer makes uh, based on what they are learning from the Word of God that it's time to make a break with my sin. I can no longer do this anymore, and if you notice in verse number three, it also says this, it says, having pursued a course of sensuality, all right, and then a He gives concrete list of sins there in our text. Notice what it says in in verse number three. What's the list of sins that he lists there? He says this, sensuality, right? That could also mean sexual uh, immorality. Lust, that includes passions and desires of all kinds of evil appetites. Uh, Not necessarily in that case, sexual sins. And then notice drunkenness. Alcoholic beverages consume frequently until the substance controls a person. Now, of course, we, the Bible's may be uh, limiting it to that, but it's not limited to that. That's a general way of saying anything that controls you. That, I mean, In fact, look at this passage of Scripture. You may have never, never saw this passage of Scripture in, in Proverbs. What it says up here. This has to do with alcohol right? and people who are controlled by it. Look what it says. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it, is, it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. That's a person who's controlled by substance, right? And we know people in our own families and maybe it was you that was that person. But you know what, it's, it's not just alcohol, it's marijuana and uh, cocaine and heroin and prescription drugs and drugs in your medicine cabinets and op- opi- opioids and all those things. In fact, our great state of New Jersey is going to legalize marijuana and gambling. That's what we really need, right? Because it's gonna produce money so we can pay the bills. That, oh, that's really, but the, what about the end result of all that? When people's lives and families are destroyed, it doesn't help a state or a country. Right? They, see, they don't think like that. That's utter foolishness. But a believer doesn't live there. A believer knows what's right and what's wrong, and they say, no, I'm not going to participate in those things, and I'm not going to endorse them, and I'm not going to vote for them. Uh, Why? Because I know it's right. And these are things that are concrete sins that are destructive and cause death, and I don't want to be part of that. And then notice in our text, carousing, drinking parties, and then, of course, abominable idolatries. Now, this last one, abominable idolatries, some people will say this, well, you know, today we we don't really get involved with uh, idolatry." Uh, they, they think that I could never be prone to be tempted into some kind of idolatry. But they don't understand what idolatry is. Idolatry is really worshipping anything other than the Lord himself. And if you are living by your passions and desires, who's your idol? You are. Right? So we are really good at making idols in our hearts. In fact, uh, The day and age in which we live, there is a spiritual vacuum in which people are prepared to fill by looking kindly on syncretism and witchcraft and experiments with the occult. Of course, they don't say those things. They package them very nicely. Therefore, really, the biblical warning against idolatry needs really to be taken to heart. The evil one loves... a world filled with religions. In fact, he's the driving force behind a world that pretty much has always been filled with all kinds of multicolored religions. Satan used this old age form, formula of syncretism to deceive every generation, and he is still up to his old tricks. Now, for the sake of clarity... The word syncretism sounds like a big word, but it's really quite simple. It means uh, really to, when one aspect of religion, uh, one aspect of religion is really, or religions are assimilated into one another, and then they are fundamentally changed by each other. And so that's what he does. He morphs and produces religious systems that people adhere to, and there's thousands of them. Thousands of religious systems that people get involved with. You know, and people think today that, hey, listen, you know, uh even even a lot, of, I mean, yoga is a big thing today, is it not? It's it, actually a lot of churches are taking those things on. But they see the people with the people don't really realize is that yoga is not innocent. Because behind it, if you look at people that are in charge of Hinduism, this is what they would say. Yoga is an entrance into their way of thinking it's their evangelism program and so that's what they see and they don't realize that even the positions that people are practiced in yoga for what they say relaxation and meditation uh, are actually positions to the gods they don't really they don't know you they don't tell you that Right, it's, they, they tell you it's really innocent. It's, it's just exercise, stuff like that. And they tell you to empty your mind. The Bible says meditation is not emptying your mind. Meditation is filling your mind with truth. So you know it's right. So you know what? There will never be anything that I want to be connected with in our church that has anything to do with yoga, and you shouldn't either. Because it is not innocent. You know why it's not innocent? Who's behind it? Satan's behind it. And he makes everything look innocent. Everything. There's plenty of ways to exercise. You don't need to be doing that. And so, because, see, that's another system of the world. Everybody's doing it. You know, that's the big craze. Let's go out and get our uniform and our mat and this and that. And so people do that, and they don't actually examine it to say, is this something a believer ought to be part of? It's, we shouldn't be part of things like that because we need to know who's behind it all. So with the merging of Eastern and Western ideas, often called the New Age movement, there has been a mounting pressure in our day for the unification of religions and any function that really has to do with those the church should not be part of or endorse or have any kind of programs connected to it. Any function where lustful passions are aroused and unclean behaviors and conversations are being lived out or some kind of innocent religious practices are taking place, we have to examine all of it because there is a danger to become part of it. All right. In fact, if you notice this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians on the screen, it says this. Uh, actually, when we think of it like this, when the, these past sins and these past uh, things that pull us in we weren't necessarily just agreeing with them in in action. We were were actually agreeing with them uh, in reality. And so this passage of Scripture is so awesome. It says, or do you not know uh, that the unrighteousness Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no infeminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse number 11, look what it says. Such were some of you, but you are washed, and you are you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is simply saying there, it's not just sin that I do not want to master me. It's anything that prevents me from becoming Christ-like. I do not want to master me. That means it doesn't have to be sinful. It just has to be something that takes you away from the very means that God's given us to make us Christ-like. And then Ephesians, another passage, says this, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So here's a believer, completely opposite of what you used to know. You're different. You're light. You're God's children. So we need to remember that what we were before we met Christ, we need to think of that. We, we need to, from time to time, review our past. For the sake of remembering where the Lord brought you from and where he, he, the things that he'd been doing in your life all along the way. Even in the Old Testament, when you read through the Old Testament of uh, the people of Israel, what does is the scriptures say to Israel? You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Right? Don't forget that. Remember that. Because it's going to aid you throughout your journey. And then in, like Isaiah, it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, God pulled you out of a pit when you became a believer. So in doing so, when you remember those things, invest the rest of your time on this earth for the Lord. That's what you have to do. Invest the rest of your time on this earth for the Lord. And of course, when we're going to see in Scripture that you're going to find out that firm, fervent love of the brothers and sisters in Christ replaces lust. Alert aware- awareness of the times replaces being controlled by mind controlling substances. And of course, joyful adoration in the risen Lord replaces the folly of idolatry. We serve one God, He is the true and living God, right? manifested in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There are no other gods. You got that? There's no one who can compete with him or come close to him. They're just dumb idols. They can't speak. They can't hear. They can't walk on their own. They can't do anything. However people want to form an idol in their heart and mind, they cannot compete with who God is. So now we live by a better way. And what's the better way? I live by the will of God. So there's my, there's my choice that I have. There's my option. I can live by the old way of the flesh or I can live by the will of God. But I tell you what, living by the will of God is going to be the, the place that you want to be and I want to be, right? Now, saying all that brings me to my next point, and that's this, understanding that breaking with your sin has a backlash to it, Right? You think you're going to lay your sin down and have not and have no trouble? You think you're going to deal with those things and not have any kind of opposition or conflict? Are you kidding? What does the Bible say? Well, look at chapter 4, verse number 4. All right? Here is the unbeliever's surprised reaction. It says in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same Excess of dissipation, a riotous living. So in other words, the Apostle Peter mentions the difference in lifestyle after one comes to Christ. So they're saying this, what happened? We were having such a good time. We were living it up. We were free. We were doing what we wanted, when we wanted. Come on, let's together plan to have more fun. Let's plan to party, right? Isn't it all about the party? It's all about let's let's work the the so at the end of the week we can party. Let let's save so we can have this big party. And you know what the the um the world is saying, uh, your friends are saying to you, w- w- "Wait a minute, what happened?" So in other words, this is the result from. The pagans are the unsaved astonishment that their Christian neighbors no longer want to recklessly live with them anymore in that way. And so what do they do? Well, the second thing in our text, it says this. the Unbelievers' slanderous reaction in verse number 4, and they malign you. That's a great word, malign. In other words, they're saying, "What, what do you mean? You don't want to come with us anymore. Oh, no. You didn't become one of those Christians, did you? You did, didn't you? What a boring life that is. Boy, have you gotten off the ship. Boy, I don't want to hang around with you anymore. You're not going to be any fun. We once partied. Now you don't want to party anymore. You once got involved with all kinds of mischief and what I call fun, but now you don't want to do it anymore. You're brainwashed. You're no longer fun to hang with. And they finally say in the end, when you get rid of your, when you get over your religious phase or the delusionment that you got involved with and you no longer you realize there's nothing there and it's no way to live your life, then you come all back over it and we'll talk, right? So the primary form of persecution in the epistle of Peter has been verbal, a verbal abuse, uh, accused of wrongdoing, insulting them for who they are, uh, speaking against them, slandering them, mocking them. That's all part of it. And uh, we have to mark this truth down on our calendar that Christians who follow Christ, who want to do God's will, they're going to find out the very goodness of God in their life can be an offense to the world. It it can be regarded as a handicap if you are too truthful on your job. It, It can be regarded as a handicap if you are always wanting to do the right thing and do what is good and right towards people. You'll never get into that gossip group. You'll never get in amongst the people because you always seem to be opposite of what, uh, what the group wants to do because you're trying to interject some sanity of truthfulness in maybe what a particular group wants to say or do. And so you are maligned for your goodness, for your truthfulness, for your, truthfulness, for your willingness not to lie, not to deceive. Not to speak about someone unkindly, and those kind of things. And so you're you're on the you're on the outside. But isn't it kind of funny? This is this is what gets me along the way. Isn't it kind of funny that people in general do not think it's strange when people wreck their bodies or destroy their families and homes, but let a drunkard become sober and live for the Lord? and a holy life, or an immoral person trust Jesus Christ and become pure in their lifestyle, and their family or friends will say, listen, you've lost your mind, and I think it's time for therapy. I had a lady say to me one time, her husband got saved, miraculously saved, out of, out of drunkenness, right? And beating her and all kind of stuff. And a year went by, and he was so into the Lord. You know what she says? I liked him better when he was drunk. And I says, are you kidding? Are you kidding? But it, it, this is exactly what happens. This, this is frightening, though. And here's the frightening part of all this that I'm talking about this morning from the Word of God. And yet truthful, because this is what a believer knows. And, and this, this is where the game changer is right here. They know that the way they live counts. And we already saw the two ways to live. Either you live life determined by the will of human desire or a life lived determined by the will of God. But there is something heavy that our text brings out right now. And what is it? Look what it says in verse number 5. It says this. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, this is not what they're banking on. But this is what the believer knows. See, And see, this is, this is what changes everything right here. Unbelievers are accountable before God. Now, this, this is where believers come in. Either we can criticize them or we can judge them for their lifestyle and behavior or, and you know what, that's really not going to help. Or what we do, we do the right thing. What's the right thing? You bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you live the gospel before them, right? So behavior and message go together. So that's what I do. And why do I do that? Because they're heading for eternity that they're going to be lost and they're going to be under the judgment of God. That should produce me to unloosen my tongue and... Inflame my desire to want them more than anything else to know what I know. To believe in Jesus Christ. That's what I want for them. No matter what they're saying about me, no matter what they're doing, no matter how they're living, I know what they need. They need Christ. That's what they need. That's what you and I needed. See, it, says in, it tells us in Hebrews, and as much as it is appointed for men to die, die once, that's a stress there, and after this comes judgment. There's no purgatory here. There, there's none of that in, in our text. See, it says in our text is that they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God's re- in other words, in God's program, he's ready right now in his program to do that. So the unsaved have an accountability before God, and the accountability is personal. Unbelievers must give an account of themselves and the way they lived their life and treated people and ultimately the way they responded and treated God, their creator and Lord. See, there's a greater greater leveler than death. The great level is judgment. See, that's that's something that should weigh very heavy on the hearts of believers because that's the motivation to get out of our comfort zone and to tell somebody about Christ. Right? Because if you don't tell them who will, don't assume somebody else is going to. We have to tell them. And is it uncomfortable? Yes. Are you going to be, are you going to be ridiculed and criticized for it? Yes. Are you going to be call, call all kinds of names? Yes, you are. So what? You know the truth. They don't. You see something they don't see. See, that's why we have to tell them. Their ship is sinking, and they don't know it. Their house is burning to the ground, and no one's telling them. No one's coming to rescue them. See, that's what believers are to do. That's what we're to do. We are to tell them the truth. So for those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, the throne of judgment has changed to the throne of mercy. But for those who have not and do not come to Christ after they die are ushered into the throne of judgment. Now, most have not considered the fact that death is really supremely a spiritual matter and that this question of Jesus Christ will be the most important issue there when someone dies. And here's the real issue and failure that most do not think about death in the right way, a failure to realize the spiritual part of death that the condition of a person's soul is the most important matter at one's death, not the way they died, not when they died, not how young they died, not how tragic they died, but where is their eternal soul going to be? Is it going to be in the presence of God or is it going to be in the presence of God's judgment? See, that is what we need to really consider Men don't die again and again. They die once. And they are to, we are to help them know where they're going, what the verdict is going to be when they die. As the scripture records, God's verdict is acquittal for the believer, right? They, they have eternal life in heaven, but the verdict for the, for the unsaved is condemnation and, of course, hell, and then finally the lake of fire separated from God forever. Now, last thing I want to mention this morning is this. We're going to be evaluated. And, and Peter wants us to know this. We're going to be evaluated. But notice what it says in verse number 6. Two things in verse 6. Well, it says there, evalu- evaluating um, Evaluating an earthly, godly life will do two things. Number one, it will be negatively evaluated by by the human standard of unbelievers. All right, notice what it says in verse number six. It says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men. Now, what does that mean? see this is addressing those who heard the gospel while alive and responded but have since died even though while alive they were judged by a human standard Be encouraged in other words that victory and divine vindication await those who suffer for what is doing uh, for doing what is right and for of course living and following the Lord through the rest of their life. So we're going to be judged negatively by the unsaved. That's a given. But see, that's not what we have to worry about or be concerned about. We need to be concerned about the next one, that we await divine vindication and complete victory, where it says at the end of verse number 6, they may live... In the spirit, according to the will of God, he's talking about now being judged by a divine standard. In other words, the lives of Christians who have passed from this world have been evaluated in one way by pagan unsaved neighbors, in a negative way, and in an entirely different manner by the divine law court. And we know that who takes our judgment? Christ takes our judgment. So therefore, we're not going to be judged based on whether we are in or out. We are in Christ. We're going to be judged as believers about how we lived our life, where we get rewards or rewards taken from us. We still have eternal life. So see, this is the important part. Final judgment is with God, and though we will be falsely accused by men, we will live according to the Spirit of God. So in other words, rejected by people, but in God's sight, chosen and honored. That's different. That's a different thing that we're to be encouraged by as believers that we are going to receive negative things and judgments on this earth, but don't worry about those. Worry about how God sees it, how God sees you. That's the main concern. All right, so this is what we've learned. The purpose of suffering as a a Christian citizen is fulfilled by imitating Christ by breaking with your sin, by understanding the backlash when you live for Christ, and of course by evaluated, being evaluated by the world uh, in a much different way than by God's divine standard. And we know those things. So again, it all has to do with our thinking. Our mind is armed with these truths. I know what God wants. I know what we, he, he's made me to do and what he wants me to be and how I'm to live for him on this earth, and I'm armed with that. No one's going to be able to move me from it or you when you're armed with it, right? But every day you know what we have to do? Put our armor on. Every day we have to put our armor on and get out there and live these things, and God strengthens you and enables you to do so. Okay, let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for the word of God. It is again a great encouragement to know these truths thank you lord they do clarify many things in our life and in our position and i pray lord jesus that you may this morning embed these things into our mind so lord we are armed with them every day and as we are armed with them lord give us this resolve in our mind to think and respond to things like you did in the, according to the will of God, not according to our old sinful passions. And as we do so, Lord, that every day we would live to be able to be ready to give the gospel to those who have not yet heard it and that we'd be able to stand strong when we're accused of things that are not true or that we're maligned for our being a believer or for doing the right thing. I just pray, Lord, that we would rest knowing this, that our vindication is before God, and I don't have to worry about anything. So take care of us in that way, Lord. And let all the glory and praise and honor go to your great name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.